Engaging Leader Podcast, Episode 61, The Myths of Creativity, The Truth About How Innovative Companies and People Generate Great Ideas, featuring David Berkus. Leadership inspire trust, passion, and action? Welcome to the Engaging Leader Podcast with Jesse Leahy, consultant, writer, and speaker. Jesse has helped executives engage hundreds of thousands of people. Join us now for principles to communicate, engage, and lead with greater impact. Welcome to the show, leaders. Before we jump into today's topic, I want to ask what you think about our new theme music. The music that you just heard kicking off this show is brand new for us. It replaces our original theme song, and we're just experimenting with it to see if we like it and what our listeners think. So throughout the month of October 2013, we're running an online survey at engagingleader.com forward slash music. And if you could take a few minutes to complete this very short survey, let us know what you think about the new music. We'd greatly appreciate it. Engagingleader.com forward slash music. Well, creativity is the starting point for all innovations. And most organizations rely on innovation to create a competitive advantage. Innovation is necessary for the successful development and implementation of new programs, better products, better customer service experiences, and so forth. Because of this, leaders of organizations in all industries are asking more and more questions about creativity. Where does it come from? How can we get more of it? Where do we find creative people? Now, in order to lead innovation efforts, we have to have a better understanding of where creativity comes from and how to enhance the creativity of the people that we lead. Our guest today is David Burkus. He's Assistant Professor of Management at the College of Business at Oral Roberts University. David teaches courses on creativity, innovation, entrepreneurship, and organizational behavior. He's the founder and editor of Leader Lab, an online publication, which also includes one of my favorite podcasts, by the way. And that, that's all about oh, sharing insights from research on leadership, innovation, and strategy. And in his brand new book, The Myths of Creativity, David demystifies the processes that drive innovation. David Burkus, welcome to the Engaging Leader podcast. Thank you so much for having me, and thanks for being a fan of Leader Lab. I feel like this is us trading our, our fandoms about each other's podcasts, so this is, is cool to be on. Very cool. Now, your book debunks 10 myths that are very prevalent today about creativity, and I want to talk about those in a bit, but first, the book kicks off with an overall model that you recommend taking the place of those myths. Can you tell us about that model? Yeah, so I mean, I start from the uh, the idea, and it's uh, sadly it's not a new idea. It's just one that I feel passionate about hasn't gotten enough traction. But the idea that we describe creativity in these sort of vague, mysterious terms, and and I'm not the first one even to use the term myths or or myth busting. Um, but I, I start with that idea, and the truth is, we've had a pretty good notion of where creative ideas come from and how creativity works psychologically for for almost 20 years, and that's uh, Teresa Immobile's what's called the componential model of creativity. There's basically four components, and I like to look at them as as three intersecting circles with one big circle around them. If you can visually sort of describe that out. And of the three circles, we have motivation. And we know a lot about, and, and Dan Pink's work Drive helped us really popularize this. We know that intrinsic motivation is usually better than extrinsic, especially for creative tasks. Um, we also have the sort of domain relevant skills, 
which are whatever field you're in, whether it's something as simple as um, administrative tasks or whether it's um, film or whether it's something really complex like supply chain management or technology, there, there has to be a certain level of domain knowledge. And then lastly are the creative thinking skills. And I think that in and of itself is a pretty big revelation that it isn't some sort of innate birth with or mysterious thing. It's a, it's a process of acquiring skills that allow you to think more creatively and generate ideas that are novel and useful. And where, where those three things intersect, when you're motivated to solve a problem and you have a good amount of knowledge about the domain that that problem is in, and you have the ability to sort of think divergently and convergently and, and think creatively, when you have all of those sort of things, and then the bigger circle is this social environment. When you have all of those things inside of an organization or a social environment that supports you being creative, then creativity happens. And you need sort of all four of those models. And, and the beauty of that is those are all things that managers and leaders can help produce. We can help find people who are motivated. We can help to develop their domain skills. We can teach them creative thinking skills. And most importantly for leaders, we can develop that social environment or change that social environment to cultivate creativity. So social environment is sort of this big circle, which is probably the hardest to do anything about, the hardest to change, but probably the most important. So if you can make changes in, in that, it's, it's going to make a bit, it's going to go a long way. Yeah, absolutely. I, th I think, and social environment, we would use a term like organizational culture and sort of the traditional literature around this social environment. But it's, does, does your organization support trading knowledge among different domains or is it very siloed around departments? Do they encourage you to take risks and try out new ideas or do you have to submit 15 page proposals every time you want to try an experimental solution to a problem, right? So how how willing are they to sort of let their people? And I feel like the reason it's it embodies all of the other ones, is it really is the most important and it's the hardest one to change. And, and the other thing I think is interesting is the middle three, the three that overlap, is something that individuals are in mostly in total control over. You know what you're motivated to do. You can go out and learn things about your domain and you can go and develop creative thinking skills. You're not the only one who shapes your social environment. So that's where the role of the leader comes in because it takes multiple people and it takes people in leadership to change that circle. So in your book, you're talking about 10 myths that are prevalent today about creativity. Some of those are, are more myths about individual creativity, and some are about team creativity. What, what's an example of one of a myth on the individual level? There's a lot of different myths on the individual level. And actually, I mean, they're individual and team. They're both all shape our individual perspective. So when mm -hmm. I say they're myths around teams, it's myths of, oh, how other teams work. Or a lot of them are myths around how individual creatives uh, work. And, you know, one of my uh, one of my favorites, or at least the most prevalent, is that this idea right off the bat about a breed myth or a genetic myth. We've been, ever since the discovery of the human gene, we've been trying to find genes for everything. And so clearly it, it, when w this thing called genetics got popular, we started to look at it ex explicitly creative people and say, oh, well, they're, they're just wired differently. They're just a different breed. They're, they're creative. I'm not that way. I wasn't, I wasn't born that way. And, and the truth is we've been searching for a long time to find a, a creativity gene and we haven't found it. The, the truth is that everybody is born creative. You know, I have an 18 month old son and he doesn't know how to speak English, but man, whatever language he speaks, he is incredibly <laughs> fluent in it and he's incredibly creative in it. Right. And I see that in all children and over time, sort of some of it gets 
kind of washed away by the uh, trying to prepare people for the quote unquote real world. And for some people, it, it doesn't happen. And there's nothing in genetics that explains why some people manage to keep that childhood curiosity and creativity and other people don't. It has a lot more to do with nurture than it does nature. Another myth that I found kind of fascinating because people don't really acknowledge it, but it's the originality myth, which sort of says that, hey, this is my idea and I, I own it and it just kind of came out of, out of uh, the thin air. And that I, I think that seems like it gets in the way of a lot of people being creative, being innovative, because they feel like they have to come up with something totally brand new. Yeah, absolutely. And and we look at these in, incredible inventions and say, oh, wow, that came out of nowhere. That was disruptive. That was breakthrough. But really, if you break it down, you can actually see where it came from. And the reason is that innovations are built from previous innovations and ideas are built from pre combinations of pre-existing ideas and from ideas that were already out there. And every major innovation is actually that, right? Henry Ford did not invent the automobile and did not invent the assembly line. The automobile was invented long beforehand. Truthfully, there was actually a really weird thing in intellectual property law that tried to patent the automobile, right? The entire system, which is kind of ridiculous and, and Ford won on that. But the idea for the assembly line actually came from looking at some of the butcher shops in, I believe in Chicago, where he saw this assembly line format where they would just move one, the animal down different stages and different butchers would do different stages. And you could, you could basically... Um, take apart a whole animal much quicker. And he said, well, this is where the creativity comes in. He looked at that and said, I could use that to build a car. Now that's something uh, we'll give him some unique credit for, but it's not like it came out of thin air to him. And, you know, we see the same thing with um, Steve Jobs used to always criticize Microsoft for ripping off uh, the graphical user interface and the personal <laughs> computer. Well, I mean, Microsoft actually ripped off Xerox and oh, by the way, so did Apple, right? So that's, but it's not, it's mm -hmm. not a problem. Ideas are built from that. And, and if you want to be more creative, the less is to go out and learn a lot more about a lot different, more different fields so that you can develop more and more of these combinations and have a better chance of stumbling upon the right one. But I think it also has ramifications for the way we use, you used it earlier, this idea of property or intellectual property. And, and I should say, I'm not a lawyer. I can't speak to how a lot of it works. I have a, a friend of mine who's a patent agent. We get into these debates all the time. But even calling it intellectual property, as opposed to something like intellectual discovery, basically says it was that person's idea. Even though history is filled with people who came up with an idea and were first to patent and somebody else did it the exact same time, sometimes the same day. My favorite example is Alexander Graham Bell filed a patent for the telephone. Elisha Gray did it on the very same day. Wow. There were four hours difference. And that's why we say that, that Alexander Graham Bell invented the telephone, that it's his intellectual property and not Elijah Gray, because basically Bell beat him to the patent office. Yeah. Same patent office too. Same patent office. Wow. Yep. You, you contrast that with Benjamin Franklin, which from what I've heard and read, invented many things and, and just purposely gave them away. He was not interested in, in keeping that close to him. He, he, it was, he just saw it as his gift to the society that he believed in. Yeah, you know, it's it's funny that you point that out because my friend who's a patent agent, I guess I, I'll give him an on-podcast plug, but he called his agency Franklin Gray. And the idea is from Benjamin Franklin and Elisha Gray, right? That there's this weird tension around intellectual property law um, that he, he, I mean, the, the value prop is that he can help you work through all of that. But it's kind of, he says those are his two big role models because both... The, the original intent of intellectual property law was to create a vast public domain, right? Was to say, okay, you have a temporary monopoly.
slowly, and then you can move forward. And I think that was even what Benjamin Franklin wanted, but I think Franklin might have seen the long-term ramifications of what happens when that temporary monopoly gets extended, right? It seems like every time that the patent or the copyright for Mickey Mouse is on the verge of expiring, suddenly patent law applies for another 20 years, right? Oh. And I think Benjamin Franklin might have been smart enough to, uh, to see that. Interesting. So those are a couple of examples more from the individual perspective. How about a, a myth that you want to describe from the team perspective? Yeah. So um, for, first of all, I believe that creativity is a team sport, right? So there are there's something to be said for cultivating your individual creativity. But if you really want to take it to the next level, get plugged into a team. And, and when you do that, you'll find a lot of the most creative teams don't look like what you think they look like. I, I love people's perceptions of how crazy Silicon Valley tech companies are, right? So we think about pool tables and free food and casual everydays instead of casual Fridays. And we sort of imagine this playful fun. A lot of people you always use, oh, we try to make it feel like grad school. And in all of that, we get this idea that somehow all the tension is also melted away. And so creative teams are naturally cohesive. I, I call it the cohesive myth. And the truth is most of the uh, innovative teams and companies that I've found actually have a place for structured conflict. They fight. There is tension. It's not personal tension. It's not drama. But they invite people to critique their work. I, I look at film, uh, film company Pixar, which is one of the most innovative companies, I think, of, of our time. And I, we look at Pixar and they actually have a regularly scheduled meeting when a film is in progress between directors and animators and anybody who wants to come. And the director will display the, the film in progress and they'll take it frame by frame and they'll basically shred it and critique it and have and basically say, oh, this needs to be changed. Could you do this instead? That sort of a thing. And it, it can feel like a fight. But it's always on the film. And truthfully, the way they relieve some tension is the director always has permission not to accept the criticism, but they open it up for criticism because they know that if, you, if, if you're not having some tension between ideas, then you're probably not thinking all that broadly. You know, I, I always used to hear it say in, in marriages, if, both, if we agree 100% of the time, then one of us is probably unnecessary, right? I think the same thing is, is with teams. If they're always on the exact same page about how something needs to be executed, you probably have uh, one of those people is unnecessary. This might be a good time to throw in a question that came from our community. It's it's related to another of you, the, the, your chapter is called the, the Brainstorming Myth. Leslie asks, last year I read an article in The New Yorker that agrees with your debunking of the brainstorming myth. What is your favorite process or tip that would replace standard brainstorming for a group? Ha. Ah, so um, I, I know the article of which you speak, and there's a it's there's been a brainstorming always gets a, a really bad rap. I actually just wrote a piece for uh, Forbes because my my take on brainstorming is a little more nuanced. It, my, my take is basically brainstorming is dead, but long live brainstorming, right? Sort of like when a king <laughs> dies, the old king is dead, long live the new king. I believe that brainstorming is a technique that can work to generate lots and lots of ideas. The real problem is that we have this tendency to jump from brainstorming as, as and by the way, when I say brainstorming, I mean Alexander Osborne, facilitator-led, four rules, not just let's throw out a bunch of ideas, but the structured activity of brainstorming. It works to create a list of lots and lots of ideas, but that in, of, in and of itself is not creativity, right? You also need some amount of convergence around ideas and you need some uh, broader process that, yes, you understand the problem, you generate lots and lots of ideas, but you also need a process for externalizing some of those ideas, getting feedback for the, from the community, refining, 
well, I love the term prototyping, right? So you take a couple of your best ideas and create prototypes around them, let the community interact with those. And then you might be combining two prototypes or you might know that one really, really shines. And so I guess the, the, the short answer is in lieu of, of brainstorming alone, I prefer uh, my favorite methodology, and I get into this in the book a little bit, is the design thinking methodology, which starts from the standpoint of making sure we found the right problem and doing a lot of research around the problem. But then they brainstorm and they brainstorm a lot. But then there's also a time of prototyping, a time of working individually to come up and develop some of the better ideas that came out of brainstorming. And then once you've prototyped, you have even more information to go back to the drawing board and find what is the best way to solve this sort of problem. So that, that methodology is called design thinking. There's a lot of work um, out of the Stanford Design School and companies like IDEO and Continuum that use that methodology. And that that's probably my favorite. But I, I should point out that what they've basically done is not said, do away with brainstorming. They've said, hey, it works, but it works as part of a larger process of design thinking. So having some processes and even maybe some constraints that can can uh, and and making sure that it's there's some argument as as you were sort of portraying earlier, but uh, that that's not just throwing ideas up on the wall, but that yeah, having having a more robust process, I guess, it leads to more productivity. Absolutely, because I mean, brainstorming is great for generating a list of ideas, but at the end of it, all you have is a list of ideas. But the you know you don't have a way of judging whether or not they're novel and useful, and for that, you need other techniques. So it it works great; it's a good start. But there's a, a few more techniques we need to do to be able to whittle down those ideas, develop them, morph them, and arrive at the final solution. In each of these ten chapters, you focus on one of these myths, and you debunk it, explain why it's not really true, and then provide several ideas for overcoming that myth. I'd like to focus on a myth we haven't talked about yet, the expert myth, and and, and really get into some of the, the details of that and some of the suggestions. In this chapter, you discuss some research that I found pretty shocking by Dean Keith Simonton. Is that how you say his last name? I hope so. Simonton. I, <laughs> Simonton. I, maybe one day I'll get the pleasure of, of meeting him and asking him how to say it. But yeah. in the meantime, I've only ever seen it in writing. <laughs> but uh, he's a professor of psychology at the University of California, Davis. And can you tell us what his his thesis is? Because I, I just have to say, it, it shocks me because I just turned 40 this year. And so it, it strikes, I think it should strike fear into the heart of every Gen Xer and baby boomer. And, uh, <laughs> but tell me, tell me about that. <laughs> yeah. And so the, the expert myth, it really straddles the line between individual and, and team because there's, there's ramifications at both levels. But simply put, the expert myth is this idea that when we come across a, a tough problem, that the person with the most expertise is the right person to solve the problem. But there's a problem with that mentality because what actually happens over an expert's career is usually the more expertise they develop, the less innovative and creative their solutions are. So there's a there's a, a funny quip in physics that if you don't do Nobel Prize winning work by the time you're 30, you should probably just hang up your shoes and go on to something else. And and there's actually some truth behind it because a lot of a lot of people who do win the Nobel Prize. They might not be 30 when they win it, but yeah, they did their work in their um, 20s. I, Einstein won the Nobel Prize for work that was submitted when he was 26, right? Yeah, that totally surprised me. Yeah, I mean, it took a while to get the award, but he was 26 when he published uh, the paper that won it. Um, and so what's happening is basically as you're, as you're new in a career, and, and this is what um, Dean Keith Simonton found out, as you're new in a career, you, you generate a lot of ideas and you can elaborate and judge a lot of ideas. Because remember, the definition of creativity is the ability to generate ideas that are novel and useful. 
And generating novel ideas is, is kind of easy uh, at, at any point, right? You can generate lots and lots of ideas. Although we know young people tend to generate lots and lots of novel ideas. And anybody that's ever um, parented a, a child knows that they generate lots of ideas. And a lot of them aren't useful, right? I just make sure I tell my kids that none of them are going to work and they should just keep them to themselves. <laughs> yeah. Well, <laughs> no. but, but over time, what happens is you develop those ideas and, and they don't work. And as you, as you go on, your ideation rate may stay the same, but your elaboration rate, which means the ideas you're willing to elaborate on and take further to experiment with goes down. So what happens is you are generating lots and lots of ideas, yes, but as you're generating the ideas, you're judging them and you're basically using your old experience to tell you, no, that'll never work because I tried something similar one time and it didn't work. And so what tends to happen is that people, as they get further in a domain, yes, they learn about what works, but they also think they learn about what doesn't work. And so they sort of self-censor themselves from doing it. So it's a lot harder for them to see those solutions. But this is not, I should, I should add, this is not destiny. There are lots of people who sort of buck this trend. This is just a trend that was found. Um, one of them that I think of most particularly is a guy by the name of Paul Erdos. Erdos is, if you're into mathematics, you already know his name. Er Erdos is famous for having the highest rate of publication of anyone we know. There was somewhere uh, above the range of 1,500 publications that we know about. We don't actually know that that's the right number because it's taking us so long to track down every single peer-reviewed publication that he published. And the reason is that Erdos would, would, was in, a nomad. He would move around all of the time. He was famous for showing up on the doorstep of a future collaborator and saying, my brain is open. And then he would begin to collaborate with that person. And though it was all in the broad field of mathematics, he would move from subdomain to subdomain and be constantly refreshing his, his knowledge and constantly learning from new fields. And as a result, he, he published more than anybody else. He had arguably a bigger influence in modern mathematics than anybody else. So much so that if you go to a conference of academic mathematicians and you ask someone, what is your Erdos number? They will give you uh, usually a single digit number. And what an Erdos number is, is the entire field of mathematics ranks itself by how closely you are to have published a paper with Paul Erdos. So if your Erdos number is uh, one, you've published one with Paul. If it's two, you published one with someone who published one with Paul, right? And you can actually map the entire realm of academic mathematics based off this one person, simply because they decided to buck the trend and constantly refresh themselves with new knowledge. So you can be like Paul Erdos. It doesn't take much. It just takes a willingness to learn outside your, your field or outside your niche and to expand yourself rather than to go really, really deep. And I, I should add, I learned this term after um, I wrote the manuscript, but as I started interacting with more of my design thinking friends that we talked about earlier, they use the term T-shaped. They say they look for people at an organizational level, they look for people who are T-shaped, who have a, a broad range of knowledge, but are an expert in one thing. But again, a T-shaped is not an I. It's not just narrow knowledge of one field and expertise in a limited area. They also have a broad understanding of a lot of other stuff. And so because of that, they can see the ideas that are on the periphery. And so they can see new ideas and they don't judge them because they know, okay, this might not work in the T in the broad vertical that I understand, but it might work in the broad horizontal because it worked over in that field. So let's go ahead and try it and let's suspend my judgment on it and we'll give it a shot. So one, one way to overcome this expert myth is to put yourself into situations where you're the actual outsider to the field. And that, and that even if you're getting older and moving beyond the, these tw the 20-somethings where Simonton found that there's a, a higher rate of ideation, that you can still continue to, you'll, you'll still continue to have the opportunities to create a lot more ideas.
Another of the cool ideas that you mentioned for combating the expert myth is making heavy use of interns, in other words, younger minds. Can you tell us the story about Martin Bionics? Yeah, so so Jay Martin is actually uh, Jay Martin's a good friend of mine. Um, and we we developed that. It started out. I just kind of met him, and I thought, oh, your story is perfect. I need to put you in the book. And then gradually, we we developed this kind of cool friendship. But Jay um, won a contract to a grant to develop a, a, a ankle a prosthetic ankle, and it basically it's. I'm gross simplification of how the technology works, but it would make real-time adjustments, whereas most um, robotic prosthetics were making just just after real-time, right? So, and, which is great. If you're walking across a flat surface, that works fine. But if you're walking down a surface that's a slope and a sudden stop, you have a problem. You need to be able to make an adjustment in a real-time. And, and the approach that for years in prosthetics people, people had was, well, we'll just do the best we can and you'll have to relearn how to walk. And that wasn't enough for Jay. So Jay won this grant based on a design that was for um, real-time adjustments in a prosthetic ankle. And he, he used the grant, like we all do, he hired a team of experts, experts in robotics, prosthetics, electrical engineering, all of these, all of these experts. And they hit a wall and they said, you know what, what, what you designed on paper can't be done in reality. We can't do this. And so Jay fired them all. And he started going around to different colleges and talking about his career. And he had had a pretty successful career already designing prosthetics. Talked about his career and said, you know, oh, by the way, I'm looking for interns on this new project. It's going to be really cool. And he developed a team of, of about eight um, interns that were beginning engineering students, um, beginning prosthetic designers, et cetera. And, and truthfully, they were so new that they didn't know what wouldn't work. And Jay told them it would work. And so they, they fought through and they were willing to – instead of dismissing ideas that came to them in their head, they were willing to test them in, in actuality. And they basically found a design that worked in real life that if you thought about it, if you were an expert engineer, wouldn't you would say it wouldn't have worked. It wasn't physically possible. But it was. It's just nobody had tested it, right? And, and I think the lesson can also be interns but just outsiders as a whole. In, in the book, I talk about an organization that I'm um, infatuated with, which is a group called Fuse core. And a fuse core believes that in order to really make positive changes in government, we actually need to start at the local level, state and municipal governments. And what they do is they provide, uh, the easiest way to explain it is it's sort of like Teach for America for governments. They provide one-year fellows, mid-career professionals and entrepreneurs who can come in and work on a project that the leader, the mayor, the governor has decided is mission critical for them. But they don't have the resources to do it or they don't have the right mindset to do it. And so FuseCore brings in this outsider who learns the game and works on that project. And, and the results, they've, they've had a, a class and a half now of these fellows, the FuseCore fellows, and the results have been amazing. From winning multi-million dollar grants to improve schools, um, to building a, a talent pool within the city of, of San Jose that could develop and use engineering talents, to developing a huge network of advocates for um, children's rights and children's health. It's, it's absolutely been amazing, and it all comes from this uh, power of outsiders. I, I'm actually um, so infatuated with FuseCore, and I don't, I don't say this much, but I will. I, I'm so infatuated with FuseCore, I said, you know what, I, I have to put you in the book. And at one point, we had a, they were in a chapter that got cut out of the book. And I said, no, no way, no how. This is a perfect example of so many things that are so creative because of this power of outsiders. So we put them in, and I've actually told them for every book copy of this book that I sell, I'll, I'll give a dollar to FuseCore because I believe in your cause so much. And I, it's not just about raising awareness of creativity, but when there are innovative companies out there and innovative nonprofits out there doing something, we got to call attention to it. Wow. 
So that's that's basically one way to bring in a single outside person to overcome the I guess the functional fixedness that would is kind of at the heart of the expert myth. And you you also talk about some ways for bringing in a bunch of outside people and we we would call that crowdsourcing for ideas. Yeah, yeah. And so um and I tried to sort of shy away from the term crowdsourcing because I think people are are blending crowdsourcing, crowdfunding, all of this different sort of social media thing. But the the idea is um, there are problems that though we might have the best people and it started in, in R and D in, in um medicine. But though we might have the best people out there, R&D scientists out there, it's impossible by, – by definition, you can never have all of the experts in a field, right? You, you can't always have all of the smartest people because there will always be people who aren't a part of your organization that went for a competitor. That Wouldn't it be nice if you could tap their brain every once in a while? Or there are people who are um, – who have retired, et cetera. So unless you employ 7 billion people, you can't be 100 percent certain you have all the smartest minds in the world. And so I use the example of a, a company called Innocentive first that was kind of the real pioneer in this crowdsourcing idea. What they would do is they would post problems that first Eli Lilly is where Innocentive came out of that they were running into. Problems that they didn't know how to solve around um, chemical formations or packaging, et cetera. And they would offer prizes to people who would solve it. And a lot of times it would come from people who were at the fringes of the domain, maybe who were industrial chemists, but not pharmaceutical chemists. But they knew, oh, you know, we have this similar, it's that T-shaped notion again. Mm -hmm. In my field, we have this sort of problem. Maybe it'll apply over here, right? And and that's where a lot of the uh, awards that Innocentive gives out come from. And, and Innocentive now isn't just limited to sort of pharmaceutical problems. There are so many of Fortune 500 companies and smaller companies who are saying, you know what, we've encountered this problem and we, the best minds in our organization, the quote unquote experts, we don't know really where to approach this. So let's just, what do we have to lose? Let's post it online and let's see what we can do in that sort of wisdom of crowds. Wow, that's fascinating. And so that was a success and it's continued to grow and grow. Innocentive still has hundreds of thousands of people registered and using it, right? Yeah, absolutely. There's there's still um, hundreds of people on their site, and and other companies have copied it. You know, I think about that. I talk about in the book the Netflix Prize, which was an attempt to build a better algorithm for movie recommendations. And one of the things I think is uh, kind of ironic about the Netflix Prize is it was, it was basically we'll pay out a um, million dollars if you can solve this problem. And by the time somebody from the periphery had solved the problem. Netflix had actually moved their business model from DVDs by mail to online streaming and said, you know what, this this algorithm, it doesn't necessarily work over here, but it's so rich in lessons for how we write future algorithms that it was definitely money well spent. And so they still paid it out and they're still applying lessons from that contest, even though ironically, the problem sort of solved itself because they shifted their business model. So the expert myth is the belief that harder problems call for more knowledgeable experts. And what we find is a lot of times they are sort of end up being let's stuck in, stuck in, in old ways or just they're, they're too knowledgeable about what can't be done. And so the trick is to find ways that would bring in an outsider's perspective. Or if you are the creative person that, that wants to be more creative, get yourself to be the outsider more and you'll, become, you'll, you'll have more opportunities to come up with ideas and as well as to elaborate on them. 
Yeah, absolutely. And remember, it's not to say that experts are always wrong, but it goes back to that idea that we have to have some level of domain skills. But when those domain skills conflict with creative thinking skills, we have a problem. And so if you're constantly refreshing your mind and constantly looking to other fields and adopting an outsider's perspective, maybe even to your own field, you have a much better chance of stumbling across the right, the right idea. Well, we've been talking about the expert myth. That's just one of 10 myths in the new book, The Myths of Creativity, The Truth About How Innovative Companies and People Generate Great Ideas. David Berkus, tell us how people can find out more about this book and about your work. So, I, you know, I think the easiest way, I, I've been blessed with a really, really unique name. And so the easiest thing, you could literally just go to Google and type in David Burkus, but that'll probably take you to davidburkus.com, um, or you can go to mythsofcreativity.com, and that'll take you to a special page that's just about the book. Uh, either of those will be a perfect place to, to reach out and get in touch with me. And, and I should say, please do. I, I love interacting with people. I, I myself am trying to buck the expert myth by trying to interact with as many people as I can from as broad a range of fields as I can. So please do, please reach out to me. Oh, fantastic. Well, David Burkus, thank you for joining us on Engaging Leader. No, thank you so much for having me. All right, leaders, that wraps up this episode. We will put links to the information that David shared on our show notes, which is at engagingleader.com forward slash 6-1, as in episode 61, and we'll, we'll include also his Twitter handle and LinkedIn URL. Uh, I want, do want to remind you that if you haven't already given us feedback about the theme music, you can do that at engagingleader.com forward slash music. And if you have a question or a comment about this episode or a past episode or one of our upcoming topics, we would love to include you on the conversation. You can leave an audio message by calling in the U.S. at 989-787-0060, or you can go to engagingleader.com and click on the record voicemail button. And of course, you can send email, uh, send comments or questions by email, jesse at engagingleader.com, or on Twitter where I am at Jesse Leahy, or on Facebook or LinkedIn. Engaging Leader is a production of Aspendale Communications, a consulting firm where my colleagues and I partner with mid-size and large employers to attract top talent, engage employees, and deliver superior business results. Find out more at AspendaleCommunications.com. Our thanks to Joe Sherwood, our producer, Tom Hitchcock, our programming director, James Marler, our sound engineer, Cliff Ravenscraft, our podcasting advisor, Dustin Hartzler, our website engineer, J.J. Leahy, our video and web intern, Rick Tarrant, our announcer, and Christopher Seal, who composed our theme music. Until next time, remember, whether you realize it or not, you are always communicating and leading. Let's make the most of our opportunities to engage the people we care about.